I'm, uh, I'm really glad to be here. Uh, I live in Jonesboro, and uh, I'm down here with my wife and kids, and we're grateful for your hospitality. It was good to, uh, to have a place to stay last night and to unwind and, and take our time this morning. So uh, this is the first time I've preached in a while. Uh, I've served on the staff of Southwest Church of Christ in Jonesboro for about four years, and then I did an interim minister role for the Well Christian Church in Marion, Arkansas. And through many twists and turns, I've become a stay-at-home dad during the day and a musician by night. So uh, it, it's good to get to, to preach. It, you know, there's a particular challenge when you go to uh, preach as a guest. You know, I've heard a little bit about your church, both from Randy several months ago and then in the conversations I've had this morning, uh, but I don't know everything about your church. I don't know anything about Mineral Springs. I don't know your context. I don't know your situation. But what I want to present to you today is a grand vision of God's cosmic redemptive purpose his mission. And whatever it is that God is calling you as a church and you as individual disciples to do, it will fit within this, this grander vision. So it's going to sound like a story this morning. And I just happened to see, I was trying to look to see how, uh, how long the other preachers were preaching. I kept seeing the, the story logo pop up. Have y'all been through that? Okay, hopefully this will not be too redundant, but I don't know if that's possible, because I think we need to rehearse this. You know, Israel, they enacted their story through the festivals, they ate their story through these festivals, they sang their story through the Psalms, they rehearsed their stories as they were supposed to talk about God's law at home and on the way and when they get up and when they lie down, so... We need those rhythms and we need those reminders. So hopefully this will not be uh, too redundant, too much of what you've heard before. But we're all living in some kind of a story. We, not, we may not even be aware of what that story is, but we live according to these narratives. They tell us who we are and what we're supposed to be doing here. They tell us if there's a God or not. And if there is, what this God is like. So I want to present the biblical story this morning. And I'm always looking for ways of, of framing the story. And one of the best ways that I've heard that done is uh, in this book called God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. And he says that the kingdom of God is the theme that ties the entire Bible together. And he has this really memorable phrase that the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, under God's rule, and enjoying God's blessing. And I didn't come with any slides or anything, but if you ever pick that book up, he has a chart where he maps all of that out uh, throughout Scripture. And he has what I call these eight Ps. The pattern of the kingdom, the perished kingdom, the promised kingdom, the partial kingdom, the prophesied kingdom, the present kingdom, the proclaimed kingdom, and the perfected 
kingdom. So this is a really helpful framework to, uh, to keep the grand narrative of scripture in mind. So we start out with the pattern of the kingdom. This covers Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1, we see that God spoke, and it was so, and it was good. Creation is good, and the pinnacle of creation is humanity. And God made humans in his image. We are called to image God into the world. We are called to exercise dominion over creation, but under God's lordship. And the way that Genesis 2 describes this vocation, this task that we've been given, is Adam was supposed to tend the garden and keep it. So yeah, we move into Genesis 2, and we see that there are these perfect relationships in the Garden of Eden. Perfect relationships between God and people, people with each other, people within themselves, they're naked and unashamed, and people with the created order. There are these harmonious relationships. This is the pattern of the kingdom. This is how things were meant to be. And oh, if there were more than two chapters of the Bible devoted to the way things are supposed to be. We move into Genesis 3, and then begins the perished kingdom. The woman whom God made to be with Adam as his helpmeet, as his counterpart, she's standing by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the one tree that Adam and Eve were not supposed to eat from. They could, they could have eaten from the tree of life, but they were not supposed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent says, did God really say? Isn't that how doubt about God's goodness and trustworthiness creeps into our minds? Did God really say? God is holding out on you. Eve said, well, God said we can eat from any of these trees, but about this tree, we can't eat from it and we can't touch it. God didn't say they couldn't touch it. But the serpent says, God knows that when you eat from this tree, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So this is a, a comprehensive knowledge that is off limits to us. This is a temptation to define good and evil for ourselves. To be autonomous, to be a law unto ourselves. Eve sees that this fruit is beautiful. And it's good for making one wise. So she eats some. She gives some to her husband and he eats. Their eyes are open. They know they're naked. They run and try to sew some fig leaves together to clothe themselves. And they hear God coming and they go and hide. And we've been doing that ever since. Trying to run and hide from God. And God comes and says, Adam, where are you? God is omniscient. God knows. God knew where Adam was, but did Adam know where Adam was? And then we see the beginning of the blame game. We've got plenty of that going on in our world right now. God, it's the woman that you gave to be with me. And God asked the woman, why did you do this? It was the serpent. He deceived me and I ate. And then we see that God curses the serpent. 
uh, increases the woman's pain in childbirth and curses the ground that Adam was to work. So we see that these perfect relationships are fractured. Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. They don't have that harmonious relationship with God anymore. They're blaming each other. They don't have this perfect relationship with themselves. They are, they are aware of their nakedness and they are ashamed and they have to go and hide. And this harmonious relationship with creation is even fractured as the ground is going to produce thorns and thistles. Work was not part of the fall. The uh, seeming futility of work that comes, uh, the, uh, the seeming futility that comes along with work at times and the, the hardship of it all is a result of the fall. But work in cultivating the raw material of creation was, was part of God's plan all along. But we're here in the parish kingdom. Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. And we begin to see this downward spiral of death, decay, and destruction. Perhaps you remember that genealogy in Genesis 5, and there's that refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died. This is a description of life cut off from access to the tree of life. We see that the world, it just descends into this place of chaos and violence. And God sends the flood. He intends to start over with Noah and his family. And then once the land is repopulated, we see these humans building a tower to reach up to the heavens, saying, let's make a name for ourselves. And this tower is the epitome of human arrogance. God has to stoop down to see it, this magnificent human achievement. And God confuses their language, and then they scatter. But from that same region of the world, God calls a man named Abram, whose name will later be changed to Abraham, and God says, Leave your family, leave your land, go to the place I will show you. And this is the beginning of the promised kingdom. So we've seen the pattern of the kingdom, the parish kingdom, now we're moving into the promised kingdom. And God promised Abram, who was childless, which was not a good thing in the ancient world. It meant that your marriage was a failure and that your gods have failed to provide children for you. God says you're going to have descendants. You're going to have land. And through you, all nations will be blessed. This is important to keep in mind as the story unfolds. God repeats his promise to Abraham's son, Isaac, and to Isaac's son, Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons and a daughter, and they become a numerous people. So we see this promise of descendants beginning to be fulfilled. But through different events, uh, a couple of famines, 
the people of Israel, they end up in Egypt. And they become so numerous that Pharaoh becomes threatened by their presence. Well, if uh, an army comes against us, these people may join them and revolt against us. So Pharaoh enslaved the people of Israel, subjected them to hard labor. And the labor was so severe, so difficult, that the Israelites cried out to God. And God remembered these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God raised up a deliverer. He raised up Moses to lead his people out. And through the ten plagues, and through the crossing of the sea, and through drowning Israel's enemies in the sea, God, God led them out. God redeemed them as a people. God led them to Mount Sinai. And this is where God's presence came down on the mountain. And he said, you are going to be my treasured possession. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. See, the people of Israel were given a special vocation in this world. Israel is God's chosen people, but they were never intended to be God's only people. So God gave them the law at the mountain. He gave them instructions on how to construct a, a tabernacle, a tent where his presence would dwell. And once that tabernacle was finished, God's presence moved from the mountain to the tabernacle. And this is significant because it shows that the God of Israel was not a regional God. This God was not limited to that mountain. This God was mobile. And we know now that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is not limited. But God had every intention of being with this group of people, and we find out pretty quickly that they're stiff-necked. They are not quick to obey all of these things that they said they would obey. So, the people finally make it to the promised land, the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as they are there, I, sh I should have mentioned, we're in the partial kingdom now. I always forget where those lines are. So I would say that that partial kingdom begins once Israel comes out of Egypt and once God gives them the law and his presence is with them. So we're in the partial kingdom now. The pattern, the perished, the promised, and now the partial so Israel's in the land, and for a season they are faithful to the Lord. And then we start to see the cycle in the book of Judges that Israel begins to worship false gods. They commit spiritual adultery. And God raises up another people group as an instrument of judgment against them. And then when that happens, the people begin to cry out, and they cry out for deliverance. God raises up a deliverer, a Samson-like figure, you know, there are several, and they will deliver the people of Israel, and then the people will be faithful for a while, and then they turn back to worshiping idols, and we see this vicious cycle go over and over and over, but near the end of Judges, we start to hear the refrain, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right 
in their own eyes. Fast forward to the days of Samuel. And the people of Israel come to Samuel and say, we want a king like the nations around us. This is an important part of the biblical story that is often overlooked. Human kingship was not God's idea for his people. When Samuel goes to the Lord, Samuel is upset about this, and the Lord says to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me as their king. But God interacts with us and works with us. He gave the people what they wanted. He gave them Saul. He turned out to be not a very good king. And the next king was King David. And David was arguably Israel's greatest king. He was a man after God's own heart. God entered into a covenant with David and said, you will always have a descendant on the throne. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. But we find out that as, as good of a king as David is, he's also incredibly flawed. He turns out to be an adulterer and a murderer. But David was penitent. He was contrite and he repented and turned from his sin. And God did not, did not take back his promise to David. But it also, seeing where we are on this side of the story, we know that we were looking forward to great David's greater son, as the hymn says. But David's son Solomon, his second son with Bathsheba, um, he was a really wise king. He built the temple. So the presence of the Lord moved into that space in the same way that it had moved from the mountain to the tabernacle. Now it's in this, this physical dwelling. But Solomon ended up doing everything that God said a king should not do. That's another part of the Solomon story that we overlook, that, yeah, he was wise, but he did not end well. And after Solomon the kingdom was split. We had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the kings in the north, in Israel, led the people into idolatry and injustice almost immediately. So you read those prophets like Hosea and Amos, and you will see that the issue is what's happening in worship who it is that they're worshiping, but also what's happening outside of worship and the way that the, the poor, the widow, the foreigner are being treated. And it's during this time that we move into our next stage. So the partial kingdom and the prophesied kingdom, they kind of overlap because God starts sending prophets to the northern kingdom and to the southern kingdom. And their message is, Repent, turn back to God's ways, be faithful to the Lord, be faithful to the covenant. If you don't repent, you can expect judgment. But judgment does not have the final word. The prophets also announced hope. Not because Israel deserves it, but because, because God is faithful to his promises. He is faithful 
to his word. He's faithful to what he's promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to the people of Israel, and to David. So, during this time, as the prophets are preaching to the people, and the people are not listening, um, they're saying, look, you can anticipate a new exodus, a new exodus-like event, another, another event in which you are delivered from your bondage. You are delivered from your oppressors. You can anticipate a new temple because the Babylonians came in in 586 B.C. and destroyed Solomon's temple. And by the way, if you read Ezekiel, you will see that God's presence leaves the temple before that happens. That's important, too. The prophets promise a new temple. They promise uh, a new king, the Davidic king that they had been waiting for. God promised a new creation, new heaven, and a new earth. So, the prophets' warnings are unheeded. The Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. The Babylonians conquer the southern kingdom. The people in the southern kingdom are taken away from this land that God had promised to them. And that was the end of the Davidic kingdom. There was no king on the throne of David like God had promised for centuries. So uh, God's people spent many years in exile. The Persians conquered the Babylonians. They allowed the Jews to come home. They rebuilt Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. If you ever hear the term Second Temple Judaism, it's talking about this period forward. There were people who rejoiced over this temple. There were people who wept over it because they remembered what Solomon's temple was like. And as far as I know, we have no stories about God's glory filling that second temple the way God's glory filled the tabernacle and Solomon's temple. And, you know, when we flip the page from Malachi to Matthew in the way that in our Bibles, arranged as they are, we're flipping over about 400 years. So we'll just call this a little interlude in the story. So uh, the Greeks conquered uh, that whole region conquered the Persians. And when Alexander the Great died, his territory was divided amongst his generals. Two of them are really important for biblical history. You had the Ptolemies in Egypt, and you had the Seleucids in Syria. And God's people were stuck in this political ping-pong of sorts for a few hundred years. And then during the reign of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, he was one of the Seleucid leaders in, uh, in Syria, Antiochus was demanding that the Jews stop circumcising their male children. It'd be like saying to you, you can't baptize anymore. And he said, you can't have your scriptures. As you can imagine, that did not go over very well. Well, there was a revolt. We call it the Maccabean Revolt, where Judas Maccabees led uh, an army against the Syrians and won. And then they, cl they cleansed the temple. That's what Hanukkah celebrates. So Israel had this, this period of independence for about 100 years. And there was still no Davidic king on the throne. It was clear that 
what God had promised has not really come to pass just yet. The Romans came in and conquered, and that's who is in charge whenever our New Testament opens up. So Rome is in charge, and then Jesus is born. We're entering into the present kingdom. So we've had the pattern of the kingdom, the perished kingdom, promised kingdom, partial kingdom, prophesied kingdom, now the present kingdom. And what we know about Jesus from reading the whole New Testament is that Jesus has always been. God the Son is co-eternal with God the Father. There's never been a time when Jesus was not. But Jesus humbled himself, and he was born of a virgin. He put on human flesh. He entered our experience fully. And he lived a normal Jewish life until he was about 30 years old. And there was a a, a prophet who was out in the wilderness saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus of Nazareth comes and he is baptized by John. He is identifying with his people. And though Jesus was sinless, he was going to take their sin upon himself. When Jesus comes out of the water, the heavens are open, the Spirit descends on him like a dove, and there is a voice. And the voice says, You are my Son, whom I love, and you I'm well pleased. And here we, we pick up on echoes of Psalm 2, which is a royal song, psalm that was probably sung whenever a new king took the throne. And we hear echoes of Isaiah, I believe it's 42, that talks about uh, this servant being a light to the nations. Do you remember when I said Israel's role was to mediate between God and other people? I don't know if I said it that way. Israel was called to be a light to the nations. They're patterning their lives under the rule of the one true God was meant to show the surrounding peoples the wisdom of his way, and by doing so, drawing the nations to the one true God. Israel was intended to be the vehicle of God's redemption for the whole world. So we hear that echo at Jesus' baptism, and we also hear this word, beloved, we also hear an echo of Abraham's near-sacrificing his son, Isaac, his beloved son. If you remember, right before Abraham plunged the knife in, the angel of the Lord told him to stop, and there was a ram stuck in the thicket, and God provided the sacrifice in place of Abraham's son, Isaac. All of those stories are conjured up in what God the Father says about Jesus at his baptism. This is a coronation. He's being anointed as king, and he is entering into this role as the sacrificial lamb, and he is the one who's going to draw all peoples. Remember what God promised Abraham, through you all nations will be blessed. So right after Jesus is baptized, right after God says this about him right after he is anointed as king. The Spirit sends him into the wilderness. 
and he is tempted by the devil for 40 days. And one of the temptations is, you know, Jesus is out there fasting, and Satan says, if you're the son of God, why don't you turn these stones into bread? What does Jesus do? He starts quoting Deuteronomy back at the devil. He is reliving Israel's experience in the wilderness, those 40 years when they were not doing what God was telling them to do. Only this time, Jesus is being faithful. Satan takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple and says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. And then Satan quotes scripture to Jesus because the angels are going to pick you up. Jesus says, it is written, you will not tempt the Lord your God. You will not put your God to the test. Now, this final temptation, I think, is really relevant for the current cultural situation we find ourselves in. Satan shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world and says, if you will bow down and worship me, this will all be yours. I think Luke's version, Satan says, they're mine and I can give them to, who, to whomever I want. And Jesus said, you will worship the Lord your God and him alone. But why I think this is so relevant right now is we forget that the country in which we live, as good as it is, is still a version of the kingdoms of the world. It is not equivalent with the kingdom of God. And we'll come back to that, hopefully. Jesus is faithful to the Lord. He's empowered. And then he picks up where John left off, and he starts announcing the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then he starts calling people to follow him, to leave their occupations. <laughs> and their families for a season to be his apprentices, to be his students. And we see that Jesus starts encountering people who are possessed by demons, by unclean spirits. And they know who he is. These demons know who he is. And that, back to why I think this is so relevant right now, I think in our culture, we have forgotten what Paul says, that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the powers and the principalities and the world rulers of this darkness. The spiritual forces of evil. And if there's no neutral ground on this earth, and no matter where we live, <laughs> anywhere where Jesus has not been enthroned and as Lord, any people group, any territory, that territory belongs to the evil one. There's no neutral ground, so when we start encroaching upon it, there's going to be a fight every time. And if we forget that, we will, by default, demonize the other. We will demonize flesh and blood. We will demonize those who see the world differently than we do. 
We've seen this unfold. Democrats are the problem. Republicans are the problem. Problem. It's Biden's fault. It's Trump's fault. It's Antifa. It's Proud Boys. Did Jesus not die for all of them? We're drawing the lines in the wrong places. But back to the story. Jesus models and teaches what kind of king he is, what kind of kingdom he's bringing in, and how to carry out his mission in ways that are consistent with who he is and the nature of his kingdom. If you ever study Jesus in his historical context and you put him on the map of Second Temple Judaism, you will see that he is one of several his movement is not the only messianic movement. He is not the only would-be Messiah that came along during that time. But to oversimplify, these were the options. If you were a Jew, you were in the midst of a national crisis. You've been under the thumb of oppressive rulers for about 600 years. And all of these promises of God are dangling, and you're wondering, when is God going to come through? The Pharisees' response was to separate. Let's get away from everybody and everything that's unclean. The Sadducees' response was to accommodate and to compromise. Let's, let's work with the ruling powers and see how we can benefit from this. The Essene response was to go out into the wilderness and just wait until God destroys these people. and We'll be holy by ourselves until that happens. And then there was a revolutionary response that in a, in a sense said, sharpen your, sharpen your swords and say your prayers. I stole that from N.T. Wright. I saw that y'all were reading some N.T. Wright. Jesus doesn't fit anywhere. He didn't separate. That's what got him in trouble with the Pharisees. He didn't uh, attack Ro- the Romans when he came in during the last week of his life. That's what I think that's what caused people to change their tune from Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, to crucify him within a matter of days. He didn't retreat, and he did not revolt violently. And yet those options that were available to him that he rejected were so quick to adopt. We've departed from his way. So Jesus is betrayed by one of his own. He's arrested. He is crucified with the sign above his head, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And by the way, do you remember when James and John came to Jesus and they said, hey, can we sit at your right and your left when you come in your glory? And Jesus basically said, you don't know what you're asking for. Can you drink the cup I drink? He was talking about the cup that he was asking the Father to take away in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, if you can take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. Not my will, but your will. Now what happened when Jesus was crucified? He had one on his right and one on his left. He comes into his glory on the cross. He dies. He wasn't just unconscious. He was really dead. He was buried. 
He was raised on the third day. He was seen by many of his followers. His first evangelists were women whose testimony was not taken seriously in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world. If you wanted to make up a story and you wanted it to be credible, you would not have put women as the ones who went and told people what they saw. Jesus spends 40 days with his disciples after his resurrection, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then his disciples say, Lord, at this, at this time, are you going to uh, return the nation to, or the kingdom to Israel? And there are questions within that question. I think one of those questions is, when are you, you going to get these dirty, rotten Romans out of our land? Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons, but you're going to be empowered when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Their boundaries are about to be broken open. We're about to move into the proclaimed kingdom. This is what we're still living in this today. Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father to the place of authority where he is reigning as king and where he is interceding for us as priests. And then he pours out his spirit. Yeah, God's presence did not fill that second temple, but it filled his new temple. Us. God is constructing a temple made of living stones where he can dwell in the spirit. And it's us. Those in whom the Spirit lives. So then these disciples that were afraid after Jesus was crucified, but before he had been raised, they are emboldened. And the Peter who denied Jesus proclaims his gospel openly and is willing to suffer for it. And tradition holds that he was eventually crucified upside down for it. And then many of the Jews turn to Jesus and accept him as their Messiah. And then we see this community of people. They are committed to the apostles' teachings, to the prayers, to the breaking of bread. This could be a common meal or the Lord's Supper, or the Lord's Supper in the context of a common meal. And nobody said what they had was their own. Now, I don't think this was a common purse thing. This wasn't socialism. This wasn't anything like this, any li anything like that. It was voluntary. It was not instantaneous, but it fulfilled the vision that Deuteronomy had for how the poor in the land would be cared for. And we see eventually that because of persecution, what Jesus said about there being witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, it happened. And God called a Pharisee, one who would have separated from everybody and everything unclean. God sent a Pharisee named Paul to the Gentiles, to the nations. And Paul spilled a lot of ink trying to get these people who had historic animosity toward one another to live as the people of God together. There's a dimension of the cross that we 
look over. And it's in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. Paul is saying, hey, you Gentiles, you were far off from the promises of God. You were cut off from, from the covenants. You weren't a part of the commonwealth of Israel. But Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far off, that is, you Gentiles, that us, and he preached peace to those who were near, that is, the Jews. And that through the cross, he tore down the dividing wall of hostility so that he might create one new humanity. The kingdom that Jesus is building is not defined by blood. It's not defined by flag. It's not defined by family. It's defined by those who bow the knee to King Jesus no matter where they live, in Afghanistan, in Iran, in America, in Canada, in Africa, people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. That's what God is doing. That's what we're invited to be a part of. This is how the promise to Abraham is being fulfilled. And when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, that's how God's blessing to the nations through Abraham comes about. And what we're anticipating is the last P, the perfected kingdom. We're living in this in-between time but between the inauguration and the consummation of the kingdom of God. The kingdom has already been inaugurated. It's breaking into the world. It is now, but it's also not yet. We are waiting for King Jesus to come back and redeem and reconcile all things in heaven and on earth. And we live with this hope. And this is the hope that draws us forward. And I think we're being forced. I don't know if any of you experience this, but I think we're being forced right now to admit that we cannot throw money at problems and expect them to be fixed. Military might, in and of itself, will not fix problems, even if we spend a couple of decades. Now, we can, we can talk about plans and executions. That's, an, that's another story. I know it's more complicated than what I'm making it out to be. Getting the right politicians in office. None of that is bringing about what God intends for this world those things might keep evil at bay. But ultimately, people need to be changed with the gospel and from the inside out by the Holy Spirit. In church, this is where we come in. In Mineral Springs, Arkansas, you are being called to give your allegiance to King Jesus to commit to one another and live out those one another's in the New Testament and engage in God's redemptive mission in ways that are consistent with who Jesus is and what he in the early church modeled and taught. And by so doing, I think as this world gets more and more chaotic, if we can live into that vision, we could really be the city situated on a hill. We could really be salt and light as the distinction becomes more and more clear between the kingdom of God 
and the kingdoms of this world that we've already said belong to the evil one. That's the grand vision that I hope whatever God calls you to do, it fits within that and it helps carry it forward. No individual, no church can do it by themselves. But God is calling us to advance this kingdom that's like a mustard seed. Start small and inconspicuous. This kingdom that's like yeast working through dough. I think it was Chesterton that said, it's not that Christianity has been weighed and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. It's time to take Jesus at his word and trust him as crazy as it sounds sometimes. Let me pray for you all. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. Keep us away from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather, to be reminded, to spur one another on to love and good works, to be reminded of who we are and whose we are and the real story that we're living in. If we have been buried with Jesus in baptism, in his death, if we've been raised to new life in the power of the resurrection, to live this new life in the power of the Holy Spirit. God, you know that there are so many challenges that we are facing. There are so many things that we have trusted in that have not worked. And Jesus' way seems foolish sometimes. Jesus' way seems ineffective in a world like our own. Jesus' way seems dangerous if we want to live the way this world has trained us to live. Help us to trust that He is the truth, that He is the way, that He is the life, that in the end His way and those who follow it will be vindicated Help us to live according to his way in ways that are wise and winsome, and by doing so, we might draw people to you. God, show us where we need to repent. Show us what we need to keep doing. Be with this church as they try to figure out their next steps. And just remind them of who it is they're following. That they may not get the entire plan right now. 
but the one who is leading is trustworthy and he is good. Pour out your spirit upon us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.